Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, there's one in the holder in the pew in front of you, and you'll find our text for today, John 3.16, on page 834. Uh, usually we'll have somebody come and read the scripture passage for the day, but when you only give uh, one verse as your passage, it kind of seems a little bit, I don't want to say pointless, but uh, maybe not even time efficient. So uh, we're in John 3.16 today. Um, I'll be honest, uh, my, my thoughts on preaching from John 3.16, when Matt asked before uh, Missions Emphasis Month if I would preach, and then I started thinking through uh, what I wanted to speak on, John 3.16 just kept coming back over and over again to my mind. And a lot of times my first thought was, really? John 3.16? Like I mean, we've all, we all have probably grown up. If you've grown up in the church, you've grown up with John 3.16. You said it in Awana every year. You probably got like little jewels or ribbons for saying it. Okay, you've said it so many times. We've heard it. So many times I, I thought my wasn't that a little cliche, and then I was like, whoa, whoa, hey, whoo. Uh, I would hope John 3.16 never becomes cliche. Um, and so I, even, even a few times when I told people I was going to speak on, I'm going to speak on John 3.16, there was a little pause, and oh, oh, really? <laughs> like, really? Yeah, yes, yes, I'm speaking on John 3.16. And like I said, I would hope it would never get that way, because really John 3.16 is kind of one of like the crown jewels of Scripture. It's a beautiful verse that I think we can probably meditate on our entire lives long and never get weary of the beauty of the message that's in John 3.16. So I actually found myself then kind of pendulum swinging back the other direction where I was like, okay, for such a rich and wonderful uh, truth and verse, you're going to speak on that? You? Charles Spurgeon speaks on John 3.16. John Piper speaks on John 3.16. Matt Hareen speaks on... No, wait, and I, I said that because I knew it would get to him. I knew how much he would enjoy that. But, but really, I mean, I, I've actually, when I say the crown jewels of Scripture, I've, I've had the privilege of going a couple times to London, England, and going and seeing, like, the crown jewels of Great Britain, okay? And my ability to explain to you how beautiful they are this morning, okay, I couldn't possibly really capture it for you. And so there's a part of me that's like, can you really capture the beauty uh, and the essence of John 3.16? Because it's such an amazing and wonderful verse in truth. Really what I want to do today, what I hope to do is share, if anything, really more meditations that I've been having on this verse as I've moved through mission emphasis, Missions Emphasis Month uh, toward this Sunday, when I knew what I would speak. Now, I'll be honest, there's a lot of meditations. Uh, my apologies ahead of time to whatever's in your crock pot. Okay, but um, it, it's really just it, like maybe inviting you into what's been going through my mind as I've thought on this verse phrase by phrase, little by little, and, and think about what I want to, to deliver to you this morning. Uh, what I want us to do today is really use John 3.16 as sort of a, a lens through which to look at and assess how we see the world in light of how God sees the world. I mean, we'll very much focus on God's love and what he has done, the beauty of the gospel. But my hope is that we will not just wonder at how he sees the world, his love, but also assess how we see it. Uh, maybe by way of illustration, I, the, back in January, I had the express privilege of, of having my annual eye exam. And uh, when, when the exam was done, you go and you, know, you, you not only pick out your frames, but you set up your lenses, all the different options they give you. And so as I was sitting there working with the uh, technician there to, to, to get my lenses ordered for my new glasses, we were going through all the options, and somehow it came up that I was colorblind, Okay, and I am indeed colorblind. Now I will say this: it, now that you know I'm colorblind, if you stop me after the service and start pointing things out and saying, "Well, what color is that? What color is that? What color is that?" I will get the first ten correct. 
I don't know why that always happens when people point out, you know, when I tell them I'm colorblind, I then disprove it, I guess. Yeah, but I am, I am, I, and here's the thing, I have enough green pants in my closet that I bought thinking they were brown, and enough lavender dress shirts that I thought were blue, that I'm pretty sure I can prove I'm colorblind. Okay, and, and so I was telling this gentleman, I said, oh, I've seen those videos of people who get those new colorblind glasses. Have you all seen those videos? We're like people who are colorblind, which by the way, does not mean we see in black and white. Okay, my world is not grayscale. All right, but the people get these colorblind glasses and they try them on for the first time and they're like undone. Like they're just like, they're so overwhelmed with the beauty and majesty of everything that they're seeing for the first time that they kind of lose themselves. And I was like, is that, you know, is that what it's like? He's like, you know, we actually have some of those glasses here. And, and now he at that point starts going into salesman mode because he's explaining to me how the, you know, at the low price of like $400, I too could have a changed view of the world. Um, and um, so he's like, while we're waiting for the computer to process everything I wanted on my lenses, he's like, here, let me go get you a pair. And I'm kind of bracing myself for this. He goes and gets me this pair of glasses. And um, he's like, here, just put these on. And so I, I slipped the glasses on. Now, let me say, it probably would have been a little bit more earth-shattering if this specific optical boutique was not completely decorated in muted tones of brown, gray, and black. <laughs> like, every, I'm like, yeah, that's a crisp gray there. <laughs> you know, I wasn't sure exactly where to look even. At one point, he pointed me to this like neon green sign. He's like, isn't that, isn't that green so vibrant now? I'm like, man, that, that, that green sign was so vibrant before I put the glasses on that probably in a black and white film it would show up. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's green. And so he's desperately scrambling, uh, flowers, look outside. At one point, he turned out his computer screen. He showed me all the little logos for the different apps on his computer. It's like, aren't they so much crisper? I'm like, yeah, really colorful. I, I'll be honest, to me, they just, they didn't make that big a difference. Maybe I'm just not as colorblind. Maybe it's something I've just like conjured up in my, in my life. I don't know. Okay, but, you know, for, there, there are people who just because of their level of colorblindness, it, they, they put it on and it changes things that much. The, whole, the key is this, the whole point of them is to allow you to see things as they really are. That's the point, right? The point of the colorblind lens is that for some people, it's going to allow them to see things as they really are. And that's kind of what I want John 3.16 to do for us today, is I want, it to, uh, I want us to be able to kind of slip it on and see, does the way that I view the world agree with how God views the world? Do I see with his eyes? Are we seeing the world the same way? And so, even though it's a verse that's so incredibly familiar to us, but also, I, I would say, so incredibly beautiful to us, I want to take up the lenses of John 3.16 and look through them here this morning. So, if, if you've got it there, open your Bibles, John 3.16. Many of you, I'm sure, could just quote it along with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I'd like to just pray one more time here really quickly, and then let's get into John 3.16. Father God, we thank you so much for your revealed truth and this revealed truth of your love for the world and how you carried it out. 
I pray that we would examine ourselves this morning through the lens of Scripture and see if our view of the world, our vision of the world, agrees with, if it matches with yours. Give us eyes to see this. I pray in your name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to see here, um, I, 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 didn't, I don't have slides for each point, okay, I'll try to identify them as I go, is, is first of all, God's love for his world. Okay, so if you are taking notes, the first thing here is God's love for his world. And I want to begin with a look at how things were, like how God's world was in its, in its creation, in its desire for it, how it was intended to be. And this is another like really, really familiar passage. Okay, but I want to look at it and I hopefully let it settle into us this morning because I think it's important because it lays a foundation for what God desires for his world. So if you, if you want, you can turn back to Genesis chapter 1, okay? And here we have the account of God creating his world, this world that he loves. And, and throughout this account in Genesis 1, each day when we get to the end of what he has created, he, he responds with the same declaration that it was good. In Genesis 1, 4, God creates light and he saw that it was good, in, in verse 10, he creates the seas and the dry land, and it says there that it was good. In verse 12, he, he, he creates plants, vegetation, speaks them into existence, and he looks at it and says it's good. Verse 18, he creates the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the, the, the vast universe, and he looks at it and he says it's good. In verse 21, after he's created the fish and the birds, he looks at it and he says it's good. In verse 25, after he creates the animals, the livestock, the creeping things, the beasts, he looks at it and he says it's good. Let me pause for a moment to point out the significance of God himself declaring it good. Only God can truly render this judgment. Only he is so essentially, essentially good that he could look out over the vast expanse of what he had created and declare it good. We as humans have ideas of what is good, opinions of what is good, but they're limited, finite, fallible, and yet this is not true of God. He is so good in his essence, though, that we should not let his declaration of these things as good to escape us. In fact, imagine for a moment what it must have been like for God to look out over the whole of the created universe and say, oh, that's good. What a delight it must have been for him to say that. Now, my, my daughter and I, we, we love watching uh, Food Network. We like watching cooking shows. Okay, a lot of you out there right now, you're headed towards March Madness, you know, and in a couple Sundays, they'll unveil the brackets, and you'll be excited. Okay, we're watching a show called Tournament of Champions, okay, and it's all these cooks that are like Michelin star rated, James Beard Award winners, and uh, they had the unveiling of the bracket, okay, and we're sitting there excited about who's going to get the one seed, okay, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trevor's like, you are such a nerd. <laughs> okay, but it's true, it's true, you can confirm it, right? Okay, but we'll be, we'll be watching these shows and you'll see some chef uh, kind of like dip a little spoon into the pot and they taste it and they go, wow, that's, that's really good. And there's a part of me that at one point is like, okay, that seems a little arrogant. Okay, oh yeah, great, you did it, it's good. But at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, who else would know? I mean, these are people who have dedicated their entire life to, to like cooking and figuring out what tastes good and what blends well together to create pleasant experiences, right? If a, if a three-year-old walked up and dipped a spoon and said, that's yucky, 
right? Well, okay, you like mac and cheese and chicky nuggies. I don't think you get to declare, like, what's good. Your opinion of good doesn't really hold a lot of value. But for those people who have really kind of experienced the, the, like the height of what good food is, I mean, you'll see sometimes where they just taste it and they're overwhelmed with this thought of, wow, that's really good. And they know. So imagine on a much greater scale when a God who is good in his very essence looks out over his created world and says, that's good. But it, but it actually gets even better when in, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God makes man in his image, and he gives him this role of stewarding his created work, exercising dominion for its good under a good God. We now at this point have relational and rational beings who can enjoy not only relationship with him, but with each other and with those who would follow them and with his created order. And with all of that in mind, with the aesthetic beauty of his creation and this relational beauty and what he's created in mankind, with every aspect in consideration, he declares something in Genesis 1.31. He says, it was very good. That, that definition of the word very good there means this. This is literally the definition. Exceedingly, heartbreakingly, abundantly, richly, loudly, immeasurably good in a festive, generous, happy, intelligent, charming, splendid way. Right? Okay. Uh, I mean, festive. We think of God, you know, just responding to his creation in that way, Right? But I was, I was actually giving this definition to my worldview class that I teach here at the academy. And there was a word in there that I said, how does that, how does that strike you? Heartbreakingly good. Right? Because we normally think of things as being heartbreakingly sorrowful. I said, do you understand it? Heartbreakingly good. And you could actually see that for a moment, it was, they have a hard time getting that to click in, that something could be heartbreakingly good. And so one, one of the girls, she, she asked, she said, well, okay, have you ever experienced something heartbreakingly good? I guess started scanning my memories really quickly. And, and the first thing that came into my mind was this, the birth of my children. You know, when, when, you're, when you're standing there, okay, and I would say this for all three of them, but especially as a, as a father for the first time, you're, you're standing there, and, and I, I will admit, I know, I understand mothers out there, okay, I did really no hard work whatsoever. I just stood there and said, keep going, all right? And, but then there was that moment, okay, and I, I'm saying this, look, I, I'm saying this is the father, I'd, I'd love to know, you know, from a mother's viewpoint, but as a father even, I stood there at that moment where they, when for the first time, they held up my child, right? This new life that had come into the earth and it was my child. And I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to expect in that moment, but I remember my eyes welling up with tears because this was heartbreakingly good. My heart could not contain the goodness of that moment. It wanted to burst, because it was so good. 
this, this, this new life, right? That's what God said when he saw his world. It was heartbreakingly good. From the beauty of its material creation to the beauty of its relationship and function. But the fact is that we, we look at the world around us and realize it's no longer so. We have war between Russia and Ukraine. We have earthquakes killing tens of thousands in Turkey. We have shootings on college campuses such as Michigan State and Alabama. We read of human trafficking and abusive relationships. And I think the vast majority of relational beings would have to look at Genesis and have to look at our world and say, it's not like that anymore. That's where we turn back to Genesis 3.16 for our second point. The second thing I want you to see here this morning is God's love for his perishing world. God's love for his, his perishing world. We, we know from John 3.16 that God looks on his world with love. But that love is made even more poignant, even more powerful when we see a word in this verse that wasn't in Genesis 1. Perish. There's it's perishing. Death. That's what perish means, to die. Right? We're, we're in a world that is, that is touched by perishing, dying, decaying. Right? We, we know this just from everyday life in the simple word perishables. Okay? We, we send our lunches off to, to school with our kids. Okay? And it comes back at the end of the day. And mothers out there especially agree with me, right? What's the one thing that's left in there? It's the yogurt. The perishable. And we're irritated. Why? Because now it's, 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 it's dead. It's been sitting there all day, and it probably sat in a hot school bus going somewhere, and now it's, it's perished. It's a perishable thing. If the little Debbie snack was still there, we wouldn't have as big a concern for two reasons. One, because then we would get to eat it. All right? But secondly, because that little Debbie snack can sit in there for the next three weeks. It's going to be fine. I mean, the chocolate might be melted a bit, okay? But it's going to be okay, but not the yogurt, okay? You leave that in there for three weeks, we got a problem. In fact, I was <laughs> thinking about this idea of perishing and it's spreading. I, I was reminded of something from about five years ago when I was the administrator here at the Academy Lead Admin, okay? And um, I remember um, Teresa Jordal, who I was working with closely at the time, she came in one day in my office. She said, something stinks in the high school hallway. I'm like, right, because we, uh, high schoolers. <laughs> okay. Probably made more sense if it was junior high, but she said high school. Okay. And um, she said, no, something really stinks. So I walked up there and like, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't smell real great. Okay. Logged. Next day, a little bit more. It, like three, four days later, she's like, something really, really, really stinks. Like everyone's talking about it. I'm like, okay, we got to take care of this. So I go up there and this smell had just pervaded the entire hallway. Okay, and I, I kind of located the epicenter of the smell, all right, and I got out my locker key, and I opened up the locker, and there were like six of those mixer bottles full of protein shakes, and there was a student who had been gone for a couple weeks, one week on a vacation, and then what, another week, I think we're into our mini-term, we were just out of classes, and for two weeks, this mixer bottle, these mixer bottles full of protein shakes, the rest of it had just been sitting in there, perishing. All right, and so what do you do when you've got about six protein shake bottles full of perishing protein shake? What do you do? You throw it out. And what did I do? I tried to clean it up. See, these weren't like the ones that you buy and throw away. These were the kind, it's like a clear bottle. It's got the little coil mixer ball in it, you know, and you shake it up 
And then the stuff is so sludgy that a half hour later you got to mix it up again because it's all settling out right. It was, one, it was those. And they were really, really nice. Like I knew these were like $15, $20 bottles. And this poor guy's about to lose over $100 worth of these things. And in my moment of compassion, I'm like, I got to do something about this. Okay, and, and Teresa's telling me, no, you got to just throw them in the dumpster. I'm like, no, 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 we can take care of this. So I took them home with me. Okay, and um, keep in mind at this point, they have smelled up an entire hallway without being opened. All right, I go home and I put it, I, I get the sink, I'm going to get some, because soapy water, we can fix anything, right? And I open up that first bottle and oh my, like my kids have got to remember how bad this smell was, right? Okay, immediately. So thankfully, it was one of those days that was like cold enough that you wouldn't really open the windows, but not so cold that you couldn't. Every window in our upstairs open. My wife comes home from work, right? At this point, I have like, I've, I've washed them, I've rinsed them, I've bleached them, I've rinsed them again, and I've taken them out of the house, and they're sitting drying out on our back patio. And she just walks in, in the door, and she's like, what died in here? Because <laughs> it had just filled it had filled the entire house. It stunk so bad. Why? Because it was rotten. It was decaying. It was perishing. But take that example now and magnify it concerning a fallen world. A world, a human race that is perishing. Where that sin of Genesis 3, that, that sin that brought spiritual death and all that comes with it has pervaded all of mankind. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death, decaying, rottenness, perishing, spread to all men because all have sinned. Do you kind of get the same pervasive feel there? Death spread into God's creation. So that the world is no longer filled with that goodness that he declared over. But it's, it's perishing. It's rotting. It's decaying because of sin and its influence. And we see this in examples from early Genesis all the way through. Where just after Adam and Eve make their, their sinful choice to rebel against God. Saying he's not good enough and what he's provided isn't good enough. They rebel against him. That one chapter later you have Cain killing Abel. One chapter later after that you got a guy declaring that a young man wounded me so I killed him. And let Cain's curse isn't enough for what, what might happen here, okay? Uh, you, you go to Genesis 6 where it talks about the time of the flood where it says every thought of the intention of man's heart was only evil continually. Doesn't that sound thorough? Every thought of the intention of man's heart was only evil continually. And then it says the world was filled with violence. Does this sound like an awful setting? So God, God cleanses it, right, through the flood, and he, he, he preserves one family to kind of start things new and fresh. And not long after stepping off the ark, Noah becomes a drunken fool. You go through to the book of Judges, right? You follow Israel's history. You get up to time they're settling in the land in the book of Judges. And as you go through that book and you get to the end, some of the last stories in that book are graphic in just their horror. And how does the book end? Every, day, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This is what happens when sinful man does what's right to him. We fill the earth with violence. It's decaying, rotten, awful. So what did God do? What do you do with something that's rotten and decaying, awful? He didn't just cast it out. 
Romans 5.8, just a few verses away from Romans 5.12, says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This takes us back to John 3.16 again for our third point. This, God's active love for a perishing world. We've seen God's love for his world, his world that was heartbreakingly good in its creation. We've seen God's love for his perishing world, but I want you to see now God's active love for a perishing world. We take the words of Romans 5, 8 back to John three sixteen. We see how that they harmonize in telling us this message that God acted in love towards us. We see in Romans 5, 8 that this is, this is God who shows, or as I learned it in the King James growing up, demonstrated, okay? God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He did something about it. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus Christ loved the world enough to come and give his life dying for it. God, perishing sinners, but an active giving love. Christ, active giving love. In fact, if you were here yesterday at the marriage conference, okay, uh, the, the speaker started to speak into John three sixteen, and at first I was like, oh no, he's going to steal like my, everything I'm going to say. And then I was like, okay, good, we're tracking. And I was like, you know, maybe I should just show his video and But he said this, the essence of love is generosity. There is no love without sacrifice. In fact, he defined love this way, if I took it down correctly. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation and gives even though the other person is undeserving. It's active love. God sent his son so that a dying, perishing world might have life. Verse 17, right after John three sixteen, our key text here today says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And how? How did he make this possible for us to be saved? We, we look back in the verses that precede John 3.16, and it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You, you might know that, that that story harkens back to the time when Israel's wandering through the wilderness, and they've rebelled against their God, and because of their rebellion against their God, there have been these, these fiery, these poisonous, deadly serpents have come, and, and when they bite the people, it's, it's unto death. But God tells Moses to make this, this bronze image of the serpents, and if they will look at it in faith in God's forgiveness, they can be healed of, of this condition. They will no longer perish if they will look and believe. And so John here uses the same imagery. Jesus uses the same imagery. He says that, that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, must be lifted up. What was he lifted up on? He was lifted up on the cross. Just as the serpent there signified the source of this sin and the source of this death, this curse. Jesus himself having committed no sins, though takes on our sins and dies on the cross. First Peter 2.14 puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. No longer perishing but healed. But did you see how he did it? He himself. I, I, grammatically, I'm not sure why the two. He, he himself, he did it. He went through it. He 
redeemed us from the curse of the law, as it says in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what he's doing there on the cross. He's bearing the curse of our sins. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's what the cross was, right? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit, the spirit of life through faith. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He actively loved us enough to do this for us. This is why it can say in Ephesians chapter two, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Doesn't that describe to you a perishing, dying world? But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You notice all these passages key on that God's love, God's love, God's love. But, what, but, but it's an active love. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He did something about it. He sent his son who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died on the cross, taking our curse that we might live again. This is the act of love of God that he actively gave his son who willingly died, taking our sins that we may not perish but have life. Isn't it a beautiful gospel? Isn't it a beautiful truth? Now, here's the thing. We could easily end here. We could easily end here. It's a wonderful, beautiful truth to have considered. But I want you to remember what I said at the very beginning about John 3.16, that I wanted it to be a lens or a filter through which we examined our own love for the world. And we could definitely sit here and glory in God's love for the world. And it is rich and it is wonderful. And so, so if it is rich and wonderful, then let's, then let's look at it a little bit further and say, okay, I'm gonna take on the lenses of that verse and put them on to see if I have the same view of the world that God has. So I'm going back to John 3.16 one more time for our fourth point here is this, agreeing with God's love for a perishing world. Agreeing with God's love for a perishing world. So there's, there's one more phrase I want us to consider in John 3.16. And it's this, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, we, have, we really, we have two potential audiences here this morning. Two potential types of hearers this morning gathered. First, there may be those of you who are here this morning who have not yet believed. If so, I hope and pray that John 3.16 has caused you to consider the perishing world around you, perhaps even the effects of a perishing world in your own life but I hope that it's also caused you to see, maybe for the first time, as God sees it, how God sees you, that he loves you, that he loves you enough to send his own son, that Jesus, his son, loved you enough to die for your sins so that you could have eternal life. 
If that's you, can I just say, come. Come to this loving God today. There will be pastors down here at the front after the service would love to talk to you about how, how you can know, how you can believe in this eternal life that's offered you through Jesus Christ. Secondly, and to be honest, this was my intended audience, there are the people of God, my brothers and sisters in Christ gathered here today. Those who have believed in the Christ of this verse and have put their faith in him and come to life. Can I ask you this? Do you agree with God about the world? Let me caution you. Don't answer too quickly. I didn't ask if you mentally agree with God, whether you acknowledge or assent. Yes, God, God is God of love. Yes, he is. And yeah, the world is perishing, and he did that. Yeah, okay? I didn't ask if you just acknowledge or assent to this truth. My, my question is this. Do you agree with God in the same loving way that he looks at the world? You see, what do we say about God's love for the world? How does he see it? It's with an active, problem-solving, life-giving, giving, reconciling, active love. I said at the beginning I wanted to look at our lives, our view of the world through the lens of John 3.16, you and me, believers. If we see the world the way that God does, we don't just pity it. We don't just try to stay clean from it, remove ourselves from it so that we're not stained by it. We long to do something about it. We act. That's what agreeing with God about the world looks like. I... I, I, this verse kept coming back to me in this way because of the fact that I, I knew I was going to be speaking here at the end of Missions Emphasis Month. Missions Emphasis Month. Emphasizing what we hopefully are doing all year long. And I thought of some of the examples that I knew we'd be considering. And some of these, wouldn't, they wouldn't want to be named by name, but that we've seen them fresh here in the last month. And I think, okay, what if we were to take their circumstances, their, what they're doing, their work they're doing, and just put it into the context of John 3.16. For example, John Bricker so loved the world that he left a health, healthy, thriving work at Karis Church behind in capable hands that those in Metamora might not perish but have eternal life. It's, it's, it's viewing central Illinois through the lens of John 3.16. I agree that there are people perishing. And there's, a, there's the word of eternal life. And I, and I, and I love it enough to, to do something about it. I'm going to give my, give my life over to God to be used in that way. How about this? If, if you got to join me in watching Bob McQuery, one of our missionaries. Bob McQuery so loved the world that less than a year removed from abdominal surgery, and at an age that he would freely admit is advanced, he's chomping at the bit to get back to areas of the world that he, he can't always even mention for safety and security's sake, so that people there may not perish but have eternal life. I thought... Me, if I had just had this like big abdominal surgery and I'm kind of getting advanced in years, I'd be like, maybe this is a sign to hang it up. But man, he is like, he is fired up and ready to go. He can't wait to get back there. It frustrates him that he can't. Why? Because he agrees with God. He sees it the way God sees it. And he says, if that's what it's like, I, I want to do something about it. Outside of Missions Emphasis Month, it's the faithful Calvary Baptist Church member who reaches into the lives of their co-workers and neighbors because they're burdened for those who are perishing. They say, you know what? God so loved my co-worker that I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to invest in their life. I'm going to invite them into mine. 
so they can hear the words of eternal life, that they may not perish. Now, <laughs> let me say this, though. Here's what agreeing with God about the world does not look like. Showing up on Sunday, hearing some preaching and music, going home again just to do the same thing next week. Let me say it more clearly. Coming to church on Sunday and going home, then coming back in next week does nothing for a perishing world. Or to put it in the words of John 3.16, average American church members so love the world that he attended Sunday morning worship that the world may not perish but have eternal life. Are you, are you tracking with me? I know things turn all of a sudden. It's like, whoa, we just got serious. Maybe it hits a little close to home. Let me put it another way. I, here's the thing. I believe very much this morning that I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that true? I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Okay. I, I can tell you, I get, I get very nervous about coming up here and speaking, incredibly much so. And one of the thoughts that hit me was like, you're just talking to your brothers and sisters. Okay. So let me, can I just, can I just exhort you or challenge you with something here? I, I, I th- I've thought so many ways this week about how, like, how to phrase this. Okay, and I hope that it's born in love from me, your brother in Christ, to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, because it's just a burden of my heart. It really is. I I trust that that's true and genuine before God. How about Calvary Baptist Church so loved the world, agreed with God so much about a perishing world that needs the good news of eternal life that 30 out of 300 people attend an average prayer meeting. I've been here at Calvary Baptist Church now for a little over seven years, okay? So that means when my kids, when we came here, they were just like mid-elementary. It's, it's hard to believe it's been that long. Blows my mind, okay? And we would, we would pour, pull in on a Sunday night. And you know what the first question I ever had pulling into a Sunday night prayer meeting at Calvary Baptist Church was? Why does nobody come? How do, you, how do you answer that? Like, what do you tell your elementary age child in that moment? What do you do when it's seven years later and they say, nobody comes to these things? Look, I'm just saying this is, I, I, this is just an earnest exhortation from your brother in Christ. Look, we have a perishing world out there. And as Matt reminded us last year, God has given us the Holy Spirit and his power to reach it. But it comes through Prayer comes with pleading. I sit here in the front in the morning, and you know what I love hearing? I love hearing you sing. I get to hear it because all your voices flood through me on the way up here. I love it. When we read the passage from Romans earlier, it was powerful because I got to hear all your voices reading this blessed passage from Romans, and it was pushing through me, and I just stood there for a minute and listened. It was rich, and it was wonderful, and it was powerful, and I thought, what if the auditorium sounded like that when we prayed? What if we could get out of the Logan Chapel and in here? Because the world is perishing. And we have the message about the answer to that. And they need to hear it. And we, it needs to go everything from the, the State Farm and Country Financial and Carl Hospital and every workplace that we step into and every neighborhood that we live in, all the way out to the 1040 window. They need to hear the message of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Right? It takes prayer. I, I'll, I'll bring it closer to home, though, just so you don't feel like I'm, I'm pushing it out your way. How about this? 
I told you this was my meditation on John 3.16, right? Aaron Whistler agreed with God so much about a perishing world that he lived in the same neighborhood for seven years and knows two families by name, one of whom is Christian. But there, there's people in my neighborhood that need to hear the gospel. They're perishing. But it's the good news of eternal life. And I, I've, been, I've been challenging myself, like, what do you, okay, so do you see your neighborhood through the lenses that God sees it that says, I love it enough to do something about it? I'm going to act upon it. I'm going to get out there. And it's going to be awkward. And at times, you're going to fall on your face and fail. But here's the good news. We're just called to be the messengers. God does the, the con- converting, right? Now, here's the thing. I, I know that, um, that, that, that duty alone does not really inspire. And guilt and shame do not. Okay, but here's the thing. This is a blessed opportunity. This is a blessed, God-given, God-inspired, this is the work he's doing. The same God that looked at his world with a heartbreaking love. He said it's heartbreakingly good. He's bringing it back to that point, okay? And, And he's working to bring people into that through salvation. And so he's asked us to take that message to the world and working through us. And this is what it says later in John 17, 18, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer over those who follow him, he says this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Active love for a perishing world. His love sent him into the world. Our love sends us into the world because we agree with him that it is a perishing world and needs the good news of eternal life. But look what it also says in John seventeen twenty: I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Isn't that inspiring? Those who will believe Because this is a work that God is doing and we get to get caught up in it. We get to join him in it. It's his work. We're the instruments in his hands. And so we look at it the same way he does. We look at it in love. What if Calvary Baptist Church agrees with God about the world? What if we really see it the way he sees it? What if the lenses of John 3.16 match up with our view of reality? See, there is a purpose for us gathering here this morning. You're like, no, you just said, well, if we just gather and come home and come back. No, no, listen, there is a purpose. It's equipping and refreshing and recharging time as the family of God that restores us from the week behind and prepares us for the week ahead of actively loving a perishing world. We want to see people come into this fellowship. We want them to know the joy that we get to enjoy every Sunday morning. It's what refreshes us, it recharges us, and it pushes us back out to show active love. Can you imagine the impact 10, 20 years from now of a Calvary Baptist church that agreed with God about the world? Can you imagine it? Like put your imagination to work. How awesome it would be. What if we had an auditorium that was filled with coworkers and neighbors who were no longer perishing because they heard the words of eternal life delivered by our congregation? What if central Illinois was filled with churches in every city and town because we agreed that there are souls there who are perishing and kept sending out our own to show the active love of God in those communities. And as we kept like pushing out and sending out our own to take the gospel out there, God's like, okay, well then I'll just keep replenishing. And more, more neighbors, more, more coworkers, more people in Bloomington Normal coming to Christ. God filling up this auditorium and us pushing them back out again. And he said, okay, fine, I'll fill it up again. Wouldn't that be awesome? Do we believe God can do it? 
What if we sent missionaries around the globe reaching unreached people groups, the 1040 window, and more, and they came from our own ministry? What if our Calvary kids were filled with a passion for the kingdom of God and its work because they saw that we agreed with God and lived vibrantly passionate lives in their eyes, lives of love for a perishing world? May it be said, Calvary Baptist Church so loved the world that it gave its very lives, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life by God's grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, you're such a good God. Your gospel is so beautiful. Left to our own devices, we come up with significantly lesser things. We fashion the works of our own hands and put our faith and trust in them. And yet, you, you deliver us from this. And you say, no, no, here is a gospel. Here is good news. Here's how people can be saved. It's through my son, and I'm willing to give him. And Jesus Christ says, it's my life. I'm willing to give it. I'm willing to lay it down. I'm willing to be hung from a tree, bearing the curse of sin that people might be saved. Father, <laughs> I, I confess in my own life that I don't always see the world with the active love that you see it with. I, I sometimes teach about your love. I talk about your love. I'm thankful for your love for me. But it needs to flow through me by your spirit and your grace and your power out to others. And I need to see this world with the active love that you see it. And Father God, what, what, could, what could be done if we would see the world the way you see it? that we would agree with you and, and lay down our lives as living sacrifices to be used in the cause of the gospel. What, what a joy it would be to see that coworker walking in the joy of Christ. What a joy it would be to see the home, the house next to us filled with those who worship God in Christ and see their joy. What, what, what a blessing it would be to see Central Illinois just filled, filled with, with ministries reaching their community with the gospel of Christ. Lord, help Calvary Baptist Church and the individuals who are gathered here this morning to be a part of this work that you are doing. They will believe through your name. Lord, use us in this cause. We ask in your name. Amen.